Welcome to the Abundant Grace Podcast, where we discuss the gospel, freedom in Christ, and victorious Christianity. My name is Emily Lewis, and I am so honored that you are here. Sometimes Christianity can feel complicated or become heavy. I'm here to lighten that load. I pray that the chats had on this broadcast will empower and encourage you in your walk with Jesus. Hi there, friends. Welcome to another amazing episode of the Abundant Grace Podcast. Today, I have an interview with Joanna Adams. She is the producer of an upcoming documentary about the stay-at-home daughter movement. It was great to reconnect with Joanna and get to know the heart behind this endeavor of hers. And if this specific topic is something that you have experienced or walked through, please reach out to Joanna. She would love to hear your story as she collects more information for this documentary. I hope you enjoy hearing about her experience and her perspective. Welcome to the show, Joanna. So glad to have you here. Could you please introduce yourself to us? Sure. So my name is Joanna Adams. Um, My maiden name is Bear, so that might be how some people know me, but Emily and I actually went to a Bible camp conference together for at least, I was there at least two summers. I can't remember if it was more than that, but the conference was about a week long. So we got to know each other through that. And then I saw online that she had a podcast going and I have been working on a documentary about the stay at home daughter movement, which we'll talk about more. So that's kind of how we got reconnected now many years later, which seems crazy because I don't feel like I should be old enough to be talking about (laughs) 10 years ago, but yeah, I know some of that was quite a while at this point, but yeah. yeah. And I was, we'll probably get into this more. I don't know how much of an introduction you want right off the bat, but I was raised independent fundamental Baptist. Um, I actually, I would say I left the movement In my early 20s, we went to just a lot of different varieties of independent fundamental Baptist churches, which gave me a well-rounded kind of education in the Baptist movement and all of those different threads and segments of it, even though they all say they're very independent, had a lot of similarities. Mm. Um, That was one of the things I realized through that. But yeah, I'm currently married and I have four children too. So it's just my brief bio. Awesome. Sounds good. So you touched on your first experience with, well, you kind of did with the church. Uh, What is your experience personally with what you would call legalism? Yeah. Well, that's a big, like a big question. (laughs) I, I feel like it. One of the things I found as I was thinking about this um, throughout the week was every different church we were in. So we were in some churches that were heavily influenced by Peter Ruckman. Some of you might recognize his name. Um, We were in a GARBC church for a while, which is General Association of Regular Baptist Churches. Um, Also a Baptist Brider church for a time. That was by far probably the most interesting one. Mm. Um, and they actually call themselves Baptist brighter. I don't, they probably would have identified themselves as landmark more than Baptist brighter, which is basically the same thing. Um, I don't think they would label themselves that, but in looking at the idea, some of their big landmark ideas that they had, 
you could figure out that that was what they were. Okay. Um, I was just curious because I've heard that label thrown around a lot and I was curious if anyone actually identifies with it. Right. Right. I don't know that they ever came out and said we are a Baptist brighter, but I was able to decipher it. One of the things is that they have, um, more of a closed communion mm-hmm. and I think communions only like once or twice a year. It's kind of a weird and interesting thing Whereas a lot of Baptist churches. It's once a month. Um, so that's one of their big things. And they also have like this belief that at the marriage supper of the lamb, if you are not a Baptist, you might make it in, but you'll have to be serving everybody else. Mm-hmm. That is a part of the kind of bride of Christ. It's, it's mm-hmm. got some really bizarre, um, <laughs> bizarre beliefs anyway. So, but anyway, back to the question of legalism, I found it and I did do two years at Pensacola Christian college also. So that was okay. Another, you know, influence there. Yeah. Um, I found it interesting how so many of them had their own thing that they would latch onto. It would be, you know, one church, mm-hmm. you couldn't wear pants, maybe another church, you had to, well, most churches, you were supposed to be there like every time the doors were open, but uh, like one church, like ba- the Baptist Spider church, I was a part of, if you even went to a different church for like Sunday morning, that wasn't Baptist Spider, that was like a really bad thing. Um, of course, you've got all sorts of different legalistic standards, like based on the music you listen to, what you wear, where you go, like some churches, it's fine to go to the movie theater, other churches, it's not. So one of the things that's kind of interesting to me about legalism is it's so black and white in people's minds. Like this is right. This is wrong, Mm -hmm. but yet it varies so much by the different groups you're in that like all of these people can't be right about what they're saying. You know, if it's so clear, what they claim is so clear in the scripture and what God's telling them to do. If you're hearing from one group that you know, it's an absolute sin to wear pants and another group that that's fine. Someone has to be wrong. Mm-hmm. Somewhere. Um, and I think the other thing that's really damaging about legalism is the way if you get involved in it, that that can actually be used as a tool. Like the legalistic ideas will be used as a tool against you. Mm. Um, and so they'll, they'll take like scriptures in the Bible to almost justify what they're doing, even though they know that it's not right um, because they've made it work in their head. So it's all about if you can argue a point and you can make it work in your head, then it must be right. Mm -hmm. Um, And I saw this a lot in some of the marriage relationships where it would be, you know, basically the husband would just tell his wife, well, you're not submitting enough to me. So basically I can do whatever I want. I can, tell you to make a sandwich. If you're not making me a sandwich, I got Bible to back it that you need to make me a sandwich <laughs> kind of that idea. But then I also see it where women would do it to men where they'd say, well, you're supposed to be laying down your life for me. So you should mm. be, you know, working extra hard or making me a sandwich. So it just seemed really, <laughs> really strange at times. Um, and just how a lot of it didn't, the goal of the legalism it's like, what is the end goal of this? Like one of the things that at PCC, when I went there was that you, you couldn't like shake hands with a guy because they took a verse quite literally that you should not touch a woman, but I was, you know, you would watch people just like stare into each other's faces for hours on end and like get as close as they possibly could without touching each other. 
And I was like, what is this really accomplishing? And is, is this really helping your relationship and <laughs> helping mm-hmm. your future? Right. Um, that was another one of the just interesting things that, that I saw in legalism. So were you a rule follower? Did you try your hardest to like fit in and to follow all of the demands of whatever organization you happened to be in? Or did you, did you question it uh, from the get-go? So I would say I definitely questioned parts of it, but bought into other parts of it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, of course I questioned the parts that just seemed kind of stupid for lack of a better word, like you shouldn't wear, you know, you shouldn't wear pants or you shouldn't wear a sleeveless shirt, or you shouldn't listen to music with syncopation. Um, those kind of things I definitely questioned, but there were other things that I didn't question like the KJV onlyism that I was taught. That was one of the things where I was like, you don't, if you question that you're questioning God's word and then you're walking on super shaky ground. Mm -hmm. Um, or even some of the ideas that you're taught about relationships, those I would be like, okay, well, this is what it says. So, you know, we just have to buy into this hook, line and sinker. And I think a lot of it is what you, I don't know if you mentioned it on the recording or not, but where basically one verse is taken and pulled so out of context and it's not looked even within the context of that chapter or the context of the whole scripture um, mm-hmm. where these ideas come about. So I would say, and I was always kind of a wannabe rebel, but not, but I also, so yeah, I would like think I was rebellious if I did something kind of edgy, um, <laughs> but I definitely wasn't like a total, like wasn't a total rebel. I I very much loved the social aspect of going to church all the time too. So I would do mm-hmm. things I think to fit in mm-hmm. socially, if that makes sense. Like I wasn't absolutely to rock that boat as much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, what really changed your perspective on all of it? Then you said you left the IFB movement. You were, you know, I don't know what kind of church you're in now, but you have maintained a relationship with God. What changed? Yeah. So I was thinking about this. I think it was almost more of a slow, a slow progression out of it, if that makes sense. Um, So I Mm -hmm. went to Pensacola Christian College for two years. And then after that, I got an internship um, at a radio station in Alaska and then worked at a radio station here locally. And I, I would say that was when my perspective started shifting some because I was around Christians and great, amazing Christians that were not Baptist and we're not a part of the, Mm. you know, strict legalistic circles that I was. So I really had to see a perspective of Christianity that I didn't see in the IFB movement. So that was definitely a bigger turning point for me. Um, and I think seeing the fruit of the movement, you know, nobody's perfect, of course, and there's probably people who are imperfect in every single church you attend. Right. Um, but the overall hypocrisy in the IFB movement, I, I would say was a pretty big turnoff mm. to me. Like people who would be you know, saying they were living one way and then living a different way. I'm like, well, why don't you just tell me you're living this different way? Mm. Um, even like the whole dress thing. Like I remember one of the churches I was in, it was like you would never wear pants to church, but then they would go to, you know, the beach and put on a bikini. And I was just, Mm -hmm. it didn't really 
make sense to me. Um, so I think seeing just the, the damage that it had on, and not that that movement is necessary to blame for all the damage on, on families and relationships, but just seeing where those ideas mm-hmm. brought people's relationships and families, um, and just their Christianity in general, I think was one of the turning points for me. So I would say it was more of a slow thing. Um, mm-hmm. Then like a switch that just flipped. Right. And even when, so me and my husband, when we got married, we started attending a Calvary chapel, which we're still at now. Um, I remember even when we were attending that, I was like, well, I'm still a KJV only. It's like, remember I stuck, I stuck with that for a while, even while attending that church, even though they didn't use the KJV, because Mm -hmm. I was like, this has to be like, in my mind, it was, it just made sense. It was like, okay, this is the one Bible and there's no other translations that work. So I would say it was probably after going there for four years when I finally was like, okay, this doesn't, I actually studied it. And then I realized that it didn't, didn't make sense, of course. So then I, I left at, you know, KJV onlyism. So there was parts of it. I think leaving take, I don't know how long they say it takes, but I think there's still ideas sometimes I'll come up again. So I'm like, wait a minute, is this actually what it's saying here? Or is this just what I've been taught and right. kind of ingrained in you just a couple of weeks ago on the podcast had a gal talking about deconstruction and how a therapist looked her in the eye and said you are a legalist and she said no i've been, no i'm not i've been leaving i've left the church i'm done like six years later in her journey she's like no i am not a legalist and he goes well actually if you've been a legalist once you will always be you're recovering and <laughs> sure and so the to your point like there's all these little things that you kind of unpack along the way and go oh wait a second i've been carrying this around for a very long time and i now that i take the time to look at it again with fresh eyes i don't actually want to keep that even though i used to really hold strong to something. Right. Right. So what made you like walk away from like legalism or how did you get out of that like, in the first place to experiencing like grace or falling in love with God and not completely rejecting God? Right. Um, yeah, I definitely saw a lot of people around me that were raised the same way that now don't really want to have anything to do with, you know, Christianity or religion or God or the Bible, um, which I find is kind of just makes me sad. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that there was a couple things that kept me in Christianity and kept that personal relationship and was able to get rid of all the, you know, legalism and baggage that kind of came alongside the way that, you know, the churches I was in at that time. Um, I had, you know, a personal encounter, a salvation encounter that was so real to me that I just knew that that was real apart from everything else that, you know, had gone on. I was like, I just know that I know God is real and I know that the gospel is real. Mm -hmm. Um, So that kept me grounded. And then there were people And there were really good, kind people that I met along the way. And it would even be just a couple people, maybe in, in some of the churches. And there were people that honestly did some awful things too, but having people who were good and kind and seeing real Christianity in them, even in the IFB movement, 
I think kept me where I was like, yes, that is real. These people are, Mm -hmm. are showing Christ to me. Um, so I think that's what kept me not just leaving it, leaving Christianity completely, um, was the belief that it was real and seeing its real effects on people. Mm. Um, and that's probably partly why, you know, I'm passionate about, I, I try not to bash the whole, you know, everybody that's, that's in that, because I know some amazing people who are still would consider themselves Baptist and independent and fundamental and all that. Um, but I really try to focus on the ideas and the theology, um, and kind of the, and I, I think you've touched on this too, the, the authoritarianism that's in those churches and how that affects, you know, it can really harm people's relationships that they have with, with God and, and just how that affects that part of it. So I think that's the brief version on, on why I still consider myself a Christian, but not of course, mm-hmm. independent fundamental Baptist. Sure. Yeah. And I appreciate, uh, the grace that you have towards that too, and how other Christians have influenced you to whether they were in the movement or not, you saw their example and go, you know what? That's not what I've experienced with God, but I want that to be what I've experienced with God. So I'm going to, I'm going to stay here and figure this stuff out. And so awesome that God was able to let you see those things. So, cause like you said, there's a ton of people that haven't Mm -hmm. seen that or have just been so hurt by the hypocrisy or other things that they don't, they don't wish to stay or the incentive to stay seems really low. So what inspired you to start looking more into the stay at home daughter movement and to do a documentary on that subject? Sure. So the, um, kind of going back to the way that I was raised and my influences with it. Um, I wouldn't say that, and it's funny because my family might have a slightly different perspective, but I was the oldest daughter of a a family of eight. So I have two brothers that are older than me. Um, and then four sisters that are younger and a brother that's younger. So we were also homeschooled. So in addition to being, I, I say sometimes my family was almost, like we didn't necessarily fit in a hundred percent with the churches that we went to because we were also a part of a, a homeschool stricter kind of patriarchal movement um, in addition to the Baptist movement. So some of the things with the stay at home daughter movement were not necessarily super strong in those Baptist churches, although they would be there at times. Um, it was really strong in the homeschool kind of community and obviously not all homeschoolers practiced it. Um, but the way that I was raised was to be taught that if you are following God's plan for your life as a woman, you should basically get married and have children. And if you have an in-between time, you should be preparing for that in your life. That Mm -hmm. was kind of God's calling on, on everyone, every woman, um, being more of a free thinker myself and actually having desires to do things other than that. When I was 16, I was like, I wanted to go get a job. Um, that was kind of frowned upon, but I pushed back and still, you know, still got my job, 
and went to even going to college. It was a little bit more accepted because it was a Christian, a strict Christian college, of course. But even that was kind of like, well, you know, we're not so sure this is kind of outside of what our comfort zone is. Um, so needless to say, I didn't stick with those ideologies myself. Um, I rebelled for lack of a better word. <laughs> and <laughs> I know. And then, but I did see how it affected a lot of people around me. And then I kind of found it intriguing that people were still do, doing this and practicing this even, mm. even now. Um, so I went to a conference in, I think it was actually 2017. And I just had you know a lot of different ideas of, of kind of interesting things I would like to talk about and maybe cover and this was something I was like, you know what? Nobody has ever, as far as I know, done, like talked about this issue of the stay at home daughter movement. There's been a lot of talk about the courtship, you know, movement that was big in the nineties and how people, a lot of people have left that now and their thoughts on the positives and negatives of that. But I didn't feel like anybody had really talked about this movement. And it's something a lot of people do and don't necessarily think about, or they just, it's taught. So they adopt it. So I had this idea to, to interview women who had grown up that way and people who had, you know, were big movers and shakers in that, which you, you did have some bigger names in the nineties that kind of helped propel that along. So that was my idea and the brief, you know, reasoning behind it. Mm -hmm. So what are you finding in your research? Uh, is it still alive? Is it still, is it, does it have any momentum? Do you think? Sure. So it's always hard to tell if something is, is alive and going when you're not in it anymore, because of course, when you're in it, you're surrounded by all those people who, who kind of mm -hmm. believe the same thing. Um, which is what I see with even the IFB movement. I'm like, is this still going? But then I do see that it is still moving along. So I have found that it is still there. It's, um, uh, it doesn't quite look exactly the same on the outward appearance. Like, of course, now those people would dress more trendy. Like you typically think of, of the stay at home daughter movement and you see a you know woman in a jean jumper, but that doesn't seem to be the case as much anymore. Um, but it, it is still, it is still there and there still are people involved in practicing it. I have actually reached out some to some people who are in the movement. Cause I'm like, I'd like to hear their perspective and they, don't seem as, um, they seem more nervous about talking about it, but I've, I've heard from a lot of people who have left it. Um, people who are still practicing it. If I asked them, you know, would you consider yourself stay at home daughter? They would, the, the lines seem kind of gray at times. Mm -hmm. Um, so I found that to be a little bit interesting most of the responses I've heard from people have been that it's been difficult for them, you know, relationally to build just healthy relationships after being, you know, having your decisions made for you, which seems to be something that happens in the stay at home daughter ideas. Or I've heard from some people where it's just practically been very hard for them because they grew up and they never, like, they don't have any credit history. They don't have any job history or something happens where they decide, you know, I do want to go out on my own and they feel like they're five years behind of everybody else. Um, 
-hmm. in doing that. So those are a couple of the things that I've found from people. Mm -hmm. So what do you think the movement itself is saying about the value of women? And I know that there are some families who did like the stay at home sons thing too. I've known some families to do that, but sure. Most often I think it's daughters that are told and correct me if you, uh, if I'm wrong, but what I see is, uh, daughters being told that they kind of need to have a head over them. And that's why they need to stay in the home under their father's authority, under their parents' Mm -hmm. roof. What do you think that is saying about the value of women or their contribution? I mean, the most obvious point would be that it's telling women that they're not for some reason, almost capable at times of doing things that might be outside of their comfort zone. Because what I've seen too, is maybe somebody that's in that has an idea or something they want to do, but it's hard to do that when you're told that you shouldn't do it because you know, you need to be under your father's authority. I I remember actually when I, um, had signed up to do a radio internship in Alaska for like five weeks, um, one of my girlfriends came up to me and she was like, you know what? I don't, I don't think you should do that because basically you you don't have any man that's going to be over you to protect you. Um, so it's, you know, the basic premise is telling a woman that she needs someone to protect her at all times, um, and shouldn't be making her own decisions. And I think that can be super damaging of course, for women's confidence and can lead to them making some unhealthy relationship choices mm. as well. Um, where even if you're in, you know, more of a dominating relationship that might be turning abusive, it's really hard for them to be able to realize that and say, you know what, I don't think this is healthy anymore. Yeah. And I think the idea that, and it's, it kind of makes me sad at times because I think being a mom and having kids is like one of the coolest things. Um, But I think the idea that that's the only thing that you should contribute or, you know, even the highest thing that you can contribute, I think leads to some unhealthy ideas about women also, and just their self-worth because then I, I see, you know, women that maybe don't marry or, or can't have children and really the value that you have is, is not dependent upon whether you have kids or don't have kids or have a husband or don't have a husband or, or, you know, those sort of things that, can be set so high up on a pedestal that it's just an unhealthy balance. And then there's no, there's no value in all the other things that women are contributing to society. Sure. Yeah. What do you think a Bible verse or what train of thought contributes to the idea that a woman needs protection over her all the time? Is it an assumption that women are more easily deceived, like that taken that out of Genesis three or what, what sparks that? Sure. So I've asked people and it's been interesting to hear their responses. I think I heard a lot that women should be a keeper at home. So that basically meant, you know, you should always be home. So you shouldn't leave the home too much if you're at a career where then you're there for 40 hours a week. So therefore you're not home. That was one of the verses that I had heard to, to kind of propel the thought that women should not have a career outside the home. 
Um, the part about a man, like a father being over a woman, I've heard people, I think there's some verses about like a, a man giving his daughter in marriage. I've heard that thought kind of expanded upon. I even have heard there was some like Old Testament laws too that people have pulled into it in Old Testament culture because that seemed to be pretty strong in that culture at the time of you know, the Old Testament and, and the practices of Judaism. So uh, c- those have been a few of the things that I've heard people mm. um, bring in doctrinally okay. to support it. Yeah. Those are interesting observations that you've gathered from, your, I guess, the people that you're researching through. What do you think is the answer to help people? Like, is there a potential in it? Uh, is it completely flawed? What is a healthy direction that families can go without the the legalistic pressure to do it a certain way? You know, what mm-hmm. what would be good and healthy? So one of my main goals with my documentary is just to really let women tell their stories and have their side of it heard. Um, so I've tried not to like put in my opinions too much, if that makes sense. But I think, you know, of course I've got kids of my own. So I think a parent kind of child relationship, a healthy relationship is when you become an adult that you have more of a equal plane of that, you know, for lack of a better way of, of saying that, um, and more of a, a friendship. I've heard people say, well, I don't want, you know, I, I need to be a parent to my kids and not be a friend to my kids. I'm like, well, yeah, but you do also want to be a friend to your kids. And it's especially when they become adults, I, I think a healthy, just, there's a lot of parenting, different kinds of parenting styles, but I, th- I think a style that leads to healthy relationship is treating your kids like they are mature people who can make mature decisions. Mm-hmm. And obviously that looks different for every age, but, um, instilling in them the confidence to be like, yeah, you know, you can go out and live on your own. Now there's nothing wrong with kids living obviously with their parents, if that's helping them and it's helping the parents and it's working out well, but instilling in adults that they can be adults, whether they're a woman or a man and you you know, they can really be independent and make decisions on their own, I think is a healthy perspective just on relationships and parenting in general. Mm-hmm. How do you see these like specific relationship dynamics that are like our horizontal relationships? How do you see them impacting like, relationship with God? Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so you're, you're asking maybe like how their relationship, you know, if a woman's relationship with their parents, how that could affect her relationship with God. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Have you um, seen it? any indication that it has impacted either negatively or positively? Yeah. So that's one of the questions I've asked, um, different people. And I think some of them have, there have been people who have left, you know, just left Christianity in general. And that's more probably possibly the legalism that they've been kind of surrounded by. I mean, there are people who have stayed, you know, stayed being Christians and and following that, I think it can be a struggle. It, it seems to be if, if a woman has to go to their, fa- their father for advice and approval for basically their decisions that they make, 
um, I think that can affect their just relationship with God. If they don't feel like they can, like they're smart enough to study the scriptures and to learn theology, um, and to really learn about God and have that kind of personal relationship with him. If it's just rules that they have to follow and then boxes they have to check and even, you know, check in with their, with their dad and make sure that this is okay or however that looks in that family. Um, so I think it could, it could affect that. I wouldn't think that it always does. Um, but I think it probably depends on the strictness that people adhered to it. Cause mm. some of the circles I was in, basically a woman shouldn't necessarily even discuss biblical things because she was a woman. So that was not her place. And she should go ask, you know, a male, whether that's her husband or her father. Um, so that I think can definitely negatively affect someone's wow. relationship with God. Yeah, for sure. I just can't, I can't imagine. And I know that it was slightly tilted that direction the way I was raised, but I just can't imagine truly believing that you, it wasn't your job to know those answers. Like mm-hmm. you weren't like, it wasn't even made accessible to you. It just seems crazy. Thank you for taking the time to sit down with us and share your documentary, Joanna. I hope that it is so helpful to people being able to use their own voice and express what they've experienced. And I hope that it is helpful in guiding people towards there is another way without leaving the church, you know, sure, leaving God more specifically. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And if anyone's interested in being interviewed, if you had experience, you know, growing up in it or being closely associated with it too, I've got a Facebook page, um, stay at home daughter movement. If you look that up, um, and yeah, I'd love to chat with you. I'm still looking for people to interview. So that would be cool. Awesome. Well, have a great day, Joanna. Thanks, Emily. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of the Abundant Grace Podcast. I would love it if you would share this episode with a friend so that they can hear this encouragement and be empowered in their walk with Jesus as well. It would also mean the world to me if you would leave a rating and review on Apple for the Abundant Grace Podcast. It really does make a world of difference in getting this podcast into other people's ears so they can be equipped in their relationship with God as well. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on this week's episode. You can find me hanging out on Instagram, emily.abundantgrace, or you can send me an email, hello at emilyklewis.com. That's emily, the letter K, L-O-U-I-S.com. And until next week, remember that God's grace abounds and won't ever run out.